Uh, it's a privilege, as always, to speak to uh, a church, to bring the Word of God to them. And we will be, in a fashion, continuing on the series that I've been looking at with the pictures of our Lord as he was crucified. So before we do, let's go to him in a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you that we can study your word, that we can learn from it. Father, we pray that this day you might teach us, you might instruct us. And Father, I ask that the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart might be acceptable to thee this day. And I ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. We'll be looking at what I have called today the emptying. The emptying. Because our Lord, when he was crucified, he emptied himself. There's that old familiar hymn uh, where it says, emptied himself of all but love and bled and died for Adam's helpless race. We're looking at the emptying today. And the first thing I want to look at is the emptying of the glory that he had with the Father. We'll look first at John chapter 17. John chapter 17 and verse 5. John chapter 17 and verse 5 says, And now, O Father, this is, this is Jesus praying in the garden, and he says, And now, O Father, glorify thou me with thine own self, with the glory which I had with thee, before the world was. Think about that. The glory that I had with thee before the world was. Now, I'm asking you to picture a time when earth as we know it did not exist. There was the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit in their eternal dwelling place in heaven, and there was glory there. He had that glory. It was his by right. He had it, not that it was given to him, not that he earned it, but it was his by his very nature. He had that glory. We're given a little glimpse of this glory, if you turn forward to, if you if you turn back actually to John chapter one, verse fourteen. John chapter one, verse fourteen, and it says, "This is John speaking in his introduction." He says, "And the Word was made flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father." full of grace and truth. We beheld his glory? When did John behold 
the glory. Well, look forward to John chapter 12. All right, John chapter 12. And we have the story of This is the, sorry, we'll start with Luke 9. Luke 9. There's a, a reason I want to do them in a different order. Luke chapter 9 is when John saw the glory. Luke chapter 9, and it says in verse 28, Luke 9, 28, and it came to pass about eight days after these sayings, he took Peter and John and James, and went up into a mountain to pray. And as he prayed, the, fa the fashion of his countenance was altered, and his raiment was white and glistening. And behold, there talked with him two men, which were Moses and Elias, who appeared in glory, and spake of his decease, which he should accomplish at Jerusalem. But Peter and they that were with him were heavy with sleep, and when they were awake, they saw his glory and the two men that stood by him. Okay. That's when John saw the glory. It's interesting when we look back at that other reference I had in, in John chapter 12. When you look back at, at John, John 12, It says in verse 38 of John 12 that the saying of Isaiah the prophet might be fulfilled, which he spake, Lord, who hath believed our report, and to whom hath the arm of the Lord been revealed? Therefore they could not believe, because that Isaiah said again, He hath blinded their eyes and hardened their hearts, that they should not see with their eyes nor understand with their heart and be converted and I should heal them. These things spake Isaiah when he saw his glory and spake of him. Now remember, Isaiah is just a, a variation on the name Isaiah. So these things Isaiah said when he saw his glory. Now, when did Isaiah see the glory of the Lord Jesus? Remember, that was Elijah and Moses who were talking with him. When did Isaiah see the glory of the Lord Jesus? Well, it's in Isaiah chapter 6, verse 1. Isaiah chapter 6 and verse 1, it says, in the year that King Uzziah died, I also saw the Lord sitting upon a throne high and lifted up, and his train filled the temple. And it stood above it stood the seraphims. Each one had six wings, and tw with twain he covered his face, and with twain he covered his feet, and with twain he did fly. And one cried to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory his glory this glory is the glory of the lord jesus christ and he had that 
in the beginning with the Father. Now, sometimes we think, <coughs> we think that on the Mount of Transfiguration, the Lord Jesus put on the glory. No, actually, he didn't. What the truth of the matter is, is that it's all the rest of the time he dulled the glory. The glory was always there and it was revealed on the mount. You can also see this glory if you look in Revelation chapter 1 when John again sees the glory of the resurrected Jesus Christ. He sees him and he sees his glory. That glory was his. He had it in the beginning with the Father and he put it aside. He put it aside so that he could walk amongst us. You remember when Moses came down from the mountain after being on the mountain and, and having the Ten Commandments given to him that the children of Israel could not look upon him because the glory of the Lord shone out and he had to put a covering over his face until the glory faded. That's what the Lord Jesus was like. He had to veil the glory that was his so that he could walk amongst us. And there, that is the first thing that he put aside. He put aside the glory that was rightly his so that he could walk amongst us. The second thing I want to look at that he put aside was the service and the worship of angels. In Luke chapter 1, we find that an angel announced his conception to Mary. But before that, before the angels, before the, you know, we, we all think of the angels at his birth. We, we think, oh yeah, you know, there's the angels doing what they're supposed to do. But have a look in Hebrews chapter 1. Hebrews chapter 1. In Hebrews chapter 1, Hebrews 1 verse 6, it says, And again, when he bringeth the first begotten into the world, he saith, And let all the angels of God worship him. The Lord Jesus was entitled to the worship of angels, and he received it before he came to earth. The angels announced his birth. The angels were there uh, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace to men. This was the worship and the service of angels. It was his by right, by his position as the son, he was entitled to this. But he put it aside. We see the angels just cropping up occasionally. Have a look in Matthew chapter 4. It's interesting to see the service of angels. In Matthew chapter 4, verse 11, 
after the temptation in the wilderness, in Matthew 4, 11, it says, Then the, the devil leaveth him, and behold, angels came and ministered to him. They were there all the time, waiting for the opportunity to serve and minister to him. And they were restrained and had to wait till he gave them permission. So here we have angels ministering to him. Interestingly, it's not the only place. Luke chapter 22. Not, not one that a lot of people would be able to immediately reference, but in Luke chapter 22, verse 45, or verse 43 rather, Jesus is praying in the garden and it says in verse 42, after he had finished praying, or one of the times he prayed, there appeared an angel unto him from heaven, strengthening him. He received the service and the worship of angels. But now, have a look at Matthew chapter 26. Matthew 26. Matthew 26 and verse 53. Matthew 26, verse 53. We'll start at 51. Matthew 26, 51. And behold, one of them that were with Jesus stretched out his hand and drew his sword and struck a servant of the high priests and smote off his ear. Then said Jesus unto him, Put up again thy sword into its place, for all they that take the sword shall perish with the sword. Thinkest thou that I cannot pray to my father, and he shall presently give me more than twelve legions of angels? Twelve legions of angels. A legion was roughly 6,000 men. Twelve legions... Uh, 12 sixes, 72, 72,000 angels were waiting, available. And he didn't use them. Instead, he put that authority and power beside, aside from him voluntarily. And why? Verse 54. But how then shall the scripture be fulfilled that thus it must be? In order for the Lord Jesus Christ to accomplish his mission on earth, first of all, he had to put away the glory that he had with the Father. Secondly, he had to put away the glory and the authority and the power of the angels that were waiting can you imagine these angels? They're arrayed up, ready to go, just waiting the word. And they're saying to each other, why doesn't he bring us in? We can deal with this. But no, they had to wait. Their power and their authority and their might would not be used by him, not because he couldn't use it, but because he chose not to. 
he emptied himself of the service and the worship of angels. The third thing he emptied himself of is his power on earth. Now think of the power that the Lord Jesus Christ manifested on earth. Have a look at what it says in Matthew chapter 8, verse 27. Matthew 8, 27. This is after he stilled the storm. And he says, and... And he says in verse 26, oh, oh, says, Why are ye fearful, O ye of little faith? Then he arose and rebuked the winds and the sea, and there was a great calm. And the men marveled, saying, What manner of man is this, that even the winds and the sea obey him? The Lord Jesus had power of himself while he was on the earth. In his own ability, he had the ability and the right and the power and authority to command things. I've, I've always, yeah, I've always wondered when it says that he rebuked the winds. You know, how do you rebuke a wind? You know, do you rebuke it like a dog and say, you know, get there, get down, sit, heal. Well, however he did it, the wind obeyed. And the sea was calm. We understand and we see the power and the authority that the Lord Jesus Christ <coughs> had in himself. He had power over the elements, power over the wind, power over the sea. He had power over diseases. He had power over evil spirits. He had power over blindness, sickness. He even had power over death itself. There are at least three people that it's recorded that the Lord Jesus Christ raised from the dead. At least three, we know of. One, Jarius's daughter, had been only been dead for a few moments. If that wasn't enough, the widow of Nain's son had been dead for a, a day. They were about to bury him. Lazarus had been dead for a full three, four days. Four days. And he raised him from the dead. This is a power that he had in himself. His power. <coughs> we think of the, the angels that he had standing by in Gethsemane who could have delivered him. He didn't need them. Think of it. He didn't need them. He, he who made blind people to see could have made all those soldiers blind. He certainly who raised people from the dead could remove life from people with the same power. He who cured diseases could have struck them down with them. He who cured the paralyzed and the lame could have turned them all immobile. No, the Lord Jesus Christ had this power in himself and he chose not to use it. 
So first of all, we see that the Lord Jesus Christ chose not to have the glory which he had with the Father. Then he chose not to have the service and the worship of angels. Then he chose not to have and to use the power which he had within himself. So what does he have left? What on earth does he have left that he has not emptied himself of? Well, John chapter 19. John chapter 19. Starting at verse 23, and it says, Then the soldiers, when they had crucified Jesus, took his garments and made four parts to every soldier apart, and also his coat. Now the coat was without seam, woven from the top throughout. And they said, Therefore amongst themselves, Let us not rend it, but cast lots for it, who, whose it shall be, that the scripture might be fulfilled, which saith, They parted my vesture amongst them, they parted my raiment among them, and for my vesture did they cast lots. These things, therefore, the soldiers did. Now that's a quote from Psalm 22, in case you're wondering what, what scripture that is. There are certain interesting things we can gain from this passage. Now the first thing is, there were four soldiers. Right? To made four parts to to every soldier apart now the the roman legion was divided into centuries with a hundred men actually it only had 80 fighting men the rest were support troops that century was divided into half again 40 men and that was divided into five units of eight those eight men would mess together, camp together, serve together, march together in two groups of four. You ever wondered why soldiers march in groups of, in lines of four? Well, you can blame Gaius Marius who instituted that in the Roman army uh, and we've adopted it and kept the same manner ever since then. So the smallest unit of the Roman army is in fact four men. The unit consisted, we, we read another part that there was a centurion there. So there was four men and a centurion. You know, you think about it, that's not a lot to control a, a, a group of people. It does show that when Roman soldiers marched out to crucify three men, Nobody tried to take them off them. Four Roman soldiers. But it also indicates something else. And we can deduce here, what did Jesus wear? There were five garments that he wore. He would have worn a pair of sandals. That was one part. He would have worn a tunic next to his skin. That's one part. He would have worn a belt, uh, what they referred to frequently as a girdle. This was more than just 
a simple, like a piece of rope, or it could be in a poor person, just a piece of rope, but frequently it was a leather girdle uh, uh, and had pouches and things like that hanging from it. So it was more than just a belt belt. It was an item of clothing. The next one was a head covering. It is my opinion, and I think uh, the opinion of most reasonable scholars, that what he wore over his head was a talit in Hebrew, a prayer shawl. Just turn for a moment, Matthew chapter 9. Matthew chapter 9. Matthew chapter 9. And we're looking at verse 18. Matthew 9, 18. And while he spake these things unto him, behold, there came a certain ruler and worshipped him, saying, My daughter is even now dead, but come and lay thy hand upon her, and she shall live. That's Jairus, Jairus' daughter that we mentioned earlier. And Jesus arose and followed him, and so did his disciples. And behold, a woman, which was diseased with an issue of blood, twelve years came behind him and touched the hem of his garment. For she said within herself, If I, must, if I may but touch his garment, I shall be whole. Now, this thing of touching the hem of his garment, uh, think about it. There's a, there's a group of people walking along. If she was talking about the hem of his robe, the hem of his tunic, that's down near the ground. It would have been quite difficult for her to do that. But if it was his prayer shawl that he would have worn over his head, as a, a travelling rabbi would have done, there was not just the hem, as we think of the hem, there were the tied, knotted ends of the prayer shawl with the blue ribbon that Moses commanded that they were to wear. I believe that's what she reached out to. The symbol of obedience and faith for the Jewish people, the prayer shawl, that she reached out and grasped one of those tassels and was healed immediately. So that, I believe, is what his head covering was. Back over there in, in John chapter 19. There was sandals. There was a tunic. There was a belt. And there was a head covering. So what was this other part? And it says, and also his coat. Now, the coat was without seam, woven from the top throughout. Without seam. Now, ladies, I want you to think about this. How are you going to make a garment without a seam? Now, normally a coat was made, it was fairly simple. You would get either two pieces of cloth or one long piece of cloth and bend it over double, cut armholes, sew in 
or cut a neck hole, cut in armholes, and there you have a coat. Remember, a coat frequently did not have sleeves. Or if it, it, it did, uh, that was a, a different sort of thing. A coat was a robe to go over everything. It would be wider than your shoulders, quite a bit wider than your shoulders. And in cold weather, you pulled your arms inside the coat. Re remember that they talk about a coat being a poor man's blanket. So think about it. You could take it off and lie on it or lie under it and have a double layer of cloth to keep you warm at night. So this coat was without a seam. How do you make a coat like that without a seam? Well, there is one way to do it, and it speaks very interestingly about this. Some of you ladies will have knitted socks, okay? Now, socks don't have a seam. They're knitted circular. Well, this type of coat is virtually woven on a circular loom. I want you to think about just how difficult that would be. It was knitted on a circular loom and it was without a seam. Knitted, woven from the bottom through to the top without seam. These type of coats were very, very expensive. It was not a normal sort of a garment that you would expect a poor rabbi to wear. Clearly, someone with some serious money had bought this for him. Who was that? Well, we don't know. Perhaps it was Joanna. Now, Joanna was the wife of Herod's steward. Think about that. She was the wife of the person in charge of Herod's household. Um, that serious power and money was available to Joanna. Perhaps it was Susanna. It said that Susanna ministered to him from her substance. She must have had a fair amount of substance. So there we have Susanna. We have Joe. Maybe it was Mary Magdalene. We know so little about her that we, it's really, we just don't know. But someone with some serious money bought this for Jesus. And I, I don't think they begrudged it. I think they were delighted to be able to give something to their Lord that cost, that cost them. As an act of worship, they gave it to him. And now it's being gambled for. The soldiers cast lots. They threw dice. Roman soldiers loved their dice games. In many places, you find that they're, the, the boards for their games 
have been etched into the stones of the barracks so that they didn't have to keep drawing them all the time. Their dice games are, uh, are so common that they became uh, an expression. When Julius Caesar crossed the Rubicon, he said in Latin, Inca alia est, the die is cast. He wasn't talking about a die like you stain things with or you die like a, a stamp. He was talking about a die as a single pair of, one from a pair of dice. Dice is plural. The singular is die. The die is cast. In other words, I've rolled the dice. So when these soldiers wanted to pick between things, when they wanted to make a, a random choice, they threw dice. That's how they did it. Just imagine, the saviour of the world is dying above their heads and they're throwing dice. It's, it's just, it's callousness of a level we find hard to understand. But remember, this was, the, the condemned person's clothes were a bonus Crucifixion duty wasn't fun. You didn't enjoy that. When the centurion came and said, you know, I need four men for, us for a, uh, a crucifixion detail, the soldiers didn't jump up and down like kids in second grade going, oh, pick me, pick me, pick me. No, no one wanted this job. It was messy, it was dirty, it was dangerous, it was unpleasant. And so as a bonus, they got the condemned person's clothes. With it, they could buy some wine, do what they like with it. They gambled for his clothes. We have seen the Lord Jesus step away from his personal glory. We have seen him step away from the power, the authority, and the worship of angels. We have seen him step away from his own power and authority, which he had and was his to exercise as he saw fit. And now we see him stepping away from those few personal possessions that he had. No glory, no worship, no power, and no possessions. Is there anything else? Well, yes, there is. Keep reading there in John chapter 19, verse 25. Now there stood by the cross of Jesus, his mother, and his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Cleopas, and Mary Magdalene. Four women, three named Mary. Now, it's estimated by one person, I don't know how he worked it out, but I remember one person saying that roughly one third of all the Jewish women in Palestine during the time of Christ were named Mary. 
it, you know, you, you walk into a village and call out, Mary, someone is going to answer. So how did you tell the Marys apart? That's a, a problem. Well, sometimes it may be physical. You know, you think about it, a tall Mary, short Mary, young Mary, old Mary. Sometimes it was done by who they marry. We have Mary, the wife of Cleopas. Okay? Sometimes it was done by their children. Later on, we'll find Magdalene wasn't her last name. I mean, sometimes we get these, these funny ideas, ideas that, you know, if you sent a letter to her, it would be addressed to Mary Magdalene. Well, Magdala was a village on the shore of the Sea of Galilee, and she would have been known as Mary of Magdala, or Mary the Magdalene from Magdala. So there are three Marys and Jesus, well, aunt really, his mother's sister. We'll find her in a, in a, in a moment. When Jesus therefore saw his mother and the disciple standing by whom he loved, that's John, the guy who's writing this story, the guy who wrote this down, an eyewitness to all this, he saith unto his mother, Woman, behold thy son. Now he's not talking to him about himself. Don't, don't get the idea that he's talking about himself here. He's telling his mother, he's looking at John and he's saying, Woman, this is now your son. And and to the and he saith to the disciple, Behold thy mother. He's giving his mother into the care of John. We know that John was relatively young. He would live for another 60 years, dying at roughly 90 plus. The only, the only one of the disciples to die a natural death. It's interesting, isn't it? He lives to be 90 plus. And the first commandment with a promise is honour thy father and thy mother that thy days may be long upon the earth. The first commandment with a promise. So, it says in verse 27, And he said to the disciple, Behold thy mother. And from that hour the disciple took her unto his own home. So he's given away his family. He has abandoned his family. This is amazing at what he has walked away from, what he has turned his back on, what he has said, I will not use, I will not take these things. Nothing. Does he have left? An interesting point to, 
to uh, mention here. Apart from a reference that she was present at Pentecost, Mary now vanishes from Scripture. We don't see her again. In fact, I want you to look over at Mark chapter 15. Mark chapter 15. It says in, in verse 40 of Mark chapter 15, there were also women looking on afar off, among whom was Mary Magdalene. Oh yeah, we remember her. She was there. And Mary the mother of James the Less and Joseph. That would be the sister. Oh, sorry, that would be the wife, Mary, the wife of Cleopas. Okay, remember there was another Mary mentioned? She was mentioned as Mary, the wife of Cleopas. Here she's mentioned as Mary, the mother of James the Less and Joseph and Salome. Who was Salome? Well, that was Mary's sister. Okay, so we have the three women here, two named Mary, the missing. There are two people missing. They are his mother and the disciple John. See, I believe that when it says there in John that that same hour the disciple took her into his own house, I don't think that's a figure of speech. I don't think that's a, a, a way of saying things. I think that literally that hour then, he took her home, that she was not there at the death of, his, of her son. Neither was John. It was these women who assisted Joseph of Arimathea to take him down from the cross and prepare the body for burial. Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James the Less, and Salome. They were the ones who were there. Two Marys and Salome. Oh. Just by the way, I'll add this to you. John, we're told, became later Bishop of Ephesus. Tradition has it that Mary's tomb is in Ephesus. I think that's where she went with him. When he took up watching over the Christians of Ephesus, she went with him and died there. He stepped away from everything. He stepped away from the glory which he had with the Father. He stepped away from the worship of angels, which was his by right. He stepped away from the power that he had within himself. He stepped away from his own possessions. And finally, he stepped away from his family. Why? For us.
in order that it might be fulfilled, in order that he might die for us. But you know something? He's going to get it back. He will have the glory. He will have an army of angels with him when he returns. The Father will give him the uttermost parts of the earth as an inheritance. All power, we're told in Matthew 28, 18, all power has been given unto him. He's getting it back. One day he will be clothed with the brightness and the glory that is his by right. And he'll have a family. He'll have a heavenly family. A redeemed heavenly family that he purchased with his own blood. He is going to have a family of men and women that no one can name and number who will say, worthy, worthy is the Lamb. This is what he stepped away from and it's what he's going to get back. What a cost that he stepped away from all these things. What an unbelievable cost he paid even before he died. What a cost. What a sacrifice. Oh, but what a saviour. Is he your saviour today? What more could he have done? What more could he have put aside than to do these things in order that he might be your saviour? Is he your saviour today? If not, he can be. If not, this day you can know him who paid such a cost for your salvation. You can know him as your saviour today, right now. If you will humble yourself, recognise that you need him to have your sins forgiven, if you will reach out in faith to him, you will be saved today. And you will be part of that eternal heavenly family that he is building. As I said, what a cost. What a sacrifice. But what a saviour. He's our saviour. He can be your saviour today if you'll just reach out and accept him. Thank you for listening. If he's not your saviour today, remember, he can be. Thank you, Pastor, for this opportunity.